Hebrews chapter 3, we'll start in verse 12. We'll go through uh, the first verse of chapter 4. And we'll uh, just uh, tie it into the beginning of chapter 3 for context. And then cover those, those verses this morning, 12 through 3.12 through 4.1. So let's, um, let's just read the entire chapter of Hebrews 3, just to, to capture all the context. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Brother John, would you pray for us this morning? Me, John? Yes, sir. Okay. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, this day to come together and worship you and honor you and glorify your son's name. We thank you so much for the word that you've delivered us once for all. And we pray, Lord, that we will contend for the faith, Lord, and that we'll learn more about you and your son and your desires for us as your people. And give us ears to hear, eyes to see, Lord, as Seth unfolds your word before us this morning. And Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So coming into the beginning of this chapter, we have, as we talked about a few weeks back, we have Moses, uh, one who was faithful in all God's house, a servant, uh, one who testified to the things that were to be spoken later, and we have him compared with Christ. And Christ, obviously, clearly, comes out on top in that comparison. Um, Christ was faithful to him who appointed him, faithful over God's house. Uh, Instead of a servant, he is and he is a son. Um, instead of, of testifying to things that were to be spoken later, Christ is the Word. Right? He, he, in a sense, is the things that were to be spoken later. Um, he is the Word of God. Um, he's also described in that beginning of that chapter as the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. And uh, in the comparison, he's described as worthy of more glory 
than Moses. Um, and so we start off with this comparison and the greatness, the, the great, just just how much greater, excuse me, how much greater Christ is. Um, and then the author of Hebrews finishes that little comparison by saying, it, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so he starts to enter into this section of looking at what it means to faithfully follow this one who is greater than Moses. And he's going to use the Israelites as an exhortation to us as he, as he gets into this. Um, but we are essentially entering one of the first warning passages of Hebrews. Um, it starts in chapter 3, and the section I have today is, is the, the heart of it. And this will happen a couple other times in the book of Hebrews. And this is what people most commonly find difficult about the book of Hebrews, is these warning passages that, that speak so strongly to believers. Um, so coming out of that comparison, in verse 7 through 11, he talks about the Old Testament and brings in Psalm 95 and, and applies it to the readers and, and to us as well. Um, and he basically says, don't be like that wilderness generation. And I'm assuming this was covered last week. Uh, many of us I know we're at Ocean City, but this was what the Holy Spirit said through the writer of Psalm 95 and then again through the writer of Hebrews to speak to us and to the people of that day. Um, learn from the Old Testament Israelites. Learn from their failure to follow faithfully. They were only following Moses. You have somebody greater to follow. Do not do what they did. Um, and so we must remain faithful to remain a part of his house. And so that's the, the context leading up to verse 12. And that's what the writer continues to focus on in verse 12 when he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Right off the bat, we need to establish that he is speaking to believers. Um, this is not, I don't think something that is really debatable from this passage. You come into the beginning of chapter 3 and he says, Therefore, holy brethren, um, a term meaning the, the people of God in the church, brothers and sisters, men and women alike. And that term is again picked up in verse 12. Take care, brethren. Take care, brothers and sisters. Um, he is speaking to the church at large, to a group of professing believers. Um, and we just need to say that right off the bat because it is a strange... It, it can seem like a strange warning to say to believers. And we can start to raise questions of are these people in danger of losing their salvation and, and, and all those things that, that make us struggle when it comes to these warning passages in Hebrews. Um, but we don't want to try to skip out of the warning by saying this doesn't apply to or it's not being spoken to believers. It, it simply is. Um, so we just need to establish that right off the bat. Um, and realistically, this is a group of people that God has been at work in. Like, like this is a, a group of believers He is writing to, and God has saved them. God is working in them. Um, otherwise, they would not be addressed as brothers or holy brothers. Right? These are believers that He is writing to, and yet, a sharp warning is valid. They need to hear this because there is a threat that is real. Um, and so that is where the command comes from in verse 12. Take care. Pay special attention, lest there be in any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Mm-hmm. Um, have any of you read this before and, and, and found it difficult? Thinking that this might be a, a something that points to a loss of salvation? I would think Pentecostals would use that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Certainly, yeah. If you're of a, a Pentecostal or Arminian persuasion, you would... You would certainly use something like this to talk about the possibility of losing your salvation. Tony, do you have a thought? Um, I was just thinking, uh, yeah, probably the first time I heard it. But I think a couple of years ago, we had done a Bible study that he was married, that he was leading it. Hmm. We printed out a lot of these women and kind of talked about it and shared our ideas about it. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, the thing that kind of comes to mind is. In my Bible, it says, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I'm just thinking, okay, so what is the... Okay, we have a picture of Israel and how they turned away from God. They, they, they wandered for 40 years and they... Well, they essentially never uh, came back to God. So what is that modern equivalent? Mm-hmm. How do, what does it look like when we might turn away? Because the warning is certainly for us yeah. as well. Yeah, that's, that's where we're headed. Um Flip over to Matthew, and and the first thing I want to draw out is this should not be unexpected, that some will fall away from the living God. And it it should not be unexpected because Jesus talks about it. Um, So Matthew 13, this is a parable of the sower, and this would be one example of people falling away from the living God. And we covered this when we did our series on parables, and I'll just talk through it briefly. It's a longer parable. I don't want to read the whole thing. But as you may remember, the, the sower goes out to sow the seed, and there are four different types of ground that the seed falls into. And three of them look like salvation. And only one of them is, which is very interesting. Um, so... so the, the only seed that doesn't have any effect is the one that falls on the hard ground and is plucked by the birds and it just there's nothing that comes from that seed, that, that preached word that goes out. Nothing affects the person. Nothing in their lives changes. It's simply just uh, what we probably often experience when we're you know talking to people that don't care about the Bible or about God. They just kind of, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I remember growing, that growing up or I'm not really interested. It, it just, they just brush it off and move on. But the other two, the other three seeds produce <coughs> something. One of them falls into shallow soil and it springs up quickly, but the trials of life, the, the, the picture as the sun, right, beats on it and kills it eventually. The other one, falls amongst thorns and it grows and it rises up but it gets entangled and so there is only one seed that produces fruit right 30 60 or 100 fold and in the teaching of the parable that is the only seed that is pointing to true salvation right true salvation is not in the sprouting but in the fruit bearing and so at the same time though when you if you see this happening amongst people particularly in the church, you see the word go out and you see people respond to it, we have to realize that that parable is still happening. Right? Somebody might respond really well for five years, for ten years, until they go off to college, for six months. Somebody might be excited, passionate, 
and then all of a sudden life just gets a hold of them or they hit a trial and they just can't get through it um, that should not surprise us and we may say or look at that person and say I see somebody who is a believer Uh, and that person might say yes I, I love the Lord I'm following him but the sign of salvation is not sprouting but fruit bearing and fruit bearing that lasts over the long haul Right? And so it should not come as a surprise to us. I flip back to Matthew 7. And this is, again, Jesus speaking. Verse 21. There's, there's a little something in this passage that scares me. Um, but it's, it's still truth and it's something we need to take to heart. Verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are people that have convinced themselves some way, somehow, that they are doing things for the Lord. And, and by the things they mention, you know, we prophesied. We did many miracles. Uh, there's, there's some, at least, uh, internal genuinity to it. it. These don't sound like people that are intentionally faking Christianity for some ulterior motive. right? They, they think... They're doing the right thing. They think they're following the right path. And they come before the Lord on the final day and He says, I never knew you. And so there is some vital component of the Gospel of faith in Christ that they have completely missed. And it's, and it's deadly. Um, but realistically, we could see... We, we, we probably encounter people that, that are in this state. Yeah, John. I was going to say one thing that's interesting about that passage when they're like, you know, we did this in your name, we did mm-hmm. that in your name. It's interesting that they're counting on their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they're pointing that up and like, well, we did this, we did that. What do you mean we can't get in? Right. Like, they don't say, but you died for me. Mm-hmm. You, you gave me forgiveness of my sins. What do you mean I can't get in? Amen. But they're resting in their works. Yeah. Amen. Um, but think about what it would look like to encounter somebody like this. It wouldn't be obvious. It wouldn't be obvious that they are not the Lord's. And so it's so we come back to the Hebrews warning passage, and we start to realize this becomes a very necessary good thing that this author says. He says, "Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God." And we need to remember and realize that it's possible, not because we could lose our salvation but because we could think we are saved when we are not. Because we have missed some crucial component of the Gospel. Because we have missed Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is going to start to get into here is that unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. Or to say it positively, belief and obedience go hand in hand. 
the example is the Old Testament Israelites. And the example is that they were headed into the Promised Land. They send in the spies, right? And, and the spies come back and give a bad report. And, and God sends them into the wilderness for 40 years to die um, because they did not trust Him. They did not believe in Him. They despised Him. And they rebelled against Him. Um, as, as the Lord says to Moses in Numbers 14.11, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? The Israelites consistently failed to obey the Lord because of their failure to trust Him and believe Him. And this is what the, the author of Hebrews starts to tie in. <clears throat> Our claim to faith must be supported by our faithful following of Christ in everyday practical ways. Our our claim to faith, our saying that we are Christians, we believe, must be substantiated by a life that is lived for Christ, it's lived in obedience to His commands. Those things cannot be separated. If, If you have one, you do not have true faith. You need both. I definitely think that this this warning is to genuine believers. Um, I mean, it's to it's to essentially a, an entire church. And, it, and when the warning like this goes out to an entire church, it's going to be just professing believers. So, so people that say they're Christians and they're not, um, they're going to hear it, and it's going to affect them in a certain way. But it's also going to affect a true believer in a certain way. Um, and and very often God will use a serious, real warning to bring His people back to Himself. Um, because there's never ever in the scripture a don't worry about your life, don't worry about what you do, you have been saved by God and you're safe. Um, There is assurance and hope and surety in our salvation, but it's never to the point of do whatever you want, live the way you want, I've got this. Um, So there is a you know, attention, a compatibility, as it were, between these two concepts. We must be pursuing and following. And these warnings remind us of the need to pursue and follow God. But at the same time, our salvation does truly rest completely in Him, and it's not dependent on our our failures or our um, you know perfect faithfulness. Um, so it's, it's it's a good tension that we need to maintain. Um, but again, as we talk about our our need to be faithful. This should not surprise us. Right? John 13.35, this is just a few examples. Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love, love for one another. Right? John 14.15, If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. 
that there is no separation between belief and acting upon that belief. I think it's important to note that Jesus is not saying that, you know, if you love me, you're going to do what I tell you. I think it's some sort of a look. The principle is, if you love me, by virtue of that yeah. love, you're going to just do what is my right. heart's desire for you to do anyway. Yeah. So I think it's, I will always bring out that distinction, not that you intended it otherwise, but mm-hmm. just because so many people continue to see Christ as just another package of commandments. Yeah. Yeah. And, and somebody doing that might fall, in the er- fall yeah. into the error of if I, I just have to do these things. I'm just going to do these yes. things and, and, and right. hope that that's going to somehow lead to their salvation. But, but the heart change has to bring about those action changes. Uh, James one twenty two: Be doers of the word mm-hmm. and not hearers only. Uh, James continues in chapter 2 with the, the whole um, just discussion on faith without works being absolutely dead. Right? And so this is a biblical concept that the author of Hebrews is drawing out. First um, John is, is just full of these evidences of true faith. And at the end of the book, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And he did not write in that book about all of these feelings you ought to have and all of the... And all, and being able to point to a certain moment in time where you were saved and therefore that's my assurance. He, he went through and he talked about what it looks like to be a faithful Christian every day. And he says, I'm writing these things to you, these tests, so you know. Um, this is a relevant challenge and exhortation to us today. Very relevant. Um, I most consistently see it at, at the teenage age. Right? That, that, that time where it's easy for kids to look to an emotional experience or, or a moment when... Um, you know, they, they maybe said a prayer or went to a youth camp, something that they're kind of holding on to for their assurance. Um, but the Bible doesn't talk about assurance in this way. It doesn't talk about having a certain feeling, or it doesn't talk about assurance as this like object that we can grab, and, and as long as we get it eventually, then we're good. And assurance is a much more continuous thing, and we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, but this is a very relevant challenge and warning to us because of what the author of Hebrews says in verse 13. Mm-hmm. At the end of verse 13, he says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Um, so we are to take care, lest there be in us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away. Um, and he talks about exhorting, and we'll come to that. But he says, the danger is that you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Um, and as we think about that, we, we need to realize that it is, it is very possible, it is very real that your heart feels, in a sense, saved, or, or gives you a sort of an assured, like just confidence and your heart can deceive you. We should be very familiar with the human heart. It is not an honest organ. Right? It is, it, our hearts, our nature is sinful. And, and your heart, your, your sinful nature, we say heart, we're kind of describing really the sinful nature of man, it lies to us all the time. 
All right, think about your temptations for sin. What, what is your sinful nature doing? It is telling you that it is going to be worth it this time, or you won't get caught, or it's really not that bad, or just this one more time. What is your heart doing? It is lying to you. It is deceiving you. Or you know, maybe it's, it's trying to hide that conviction you ought to feel. It is lying to you. And so we should not be surprised that the heart, the sinful human nature, can do this even on the topic of salvation. It can lie. It can deceive. And we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin to the point where we have missed out and we are falling away. We, um, when we're talking about assurance, we need to realize that assurance results from perseverance in holding firmly to belief and a life characterized by obedience to Christ. Assurance is to be... It's not to be, like I said before, sought as like this object to be obtained. I was trying to think of an example that might help us think through this. If I... You know, it's, it's baseball season right now. It's football season. It's just starting up. And if, if somebody says, I'm a really good baseball player, or somebody says, I am the best hitter in baseball, and they have that assurance in that moment, that does not give them license to stop practicing, to stop uh, perfecting their swing. right? Because a week from now, you might not be the best hitter in baseball any longer. And you can no longer say that. So you you can't just make that statement and then you're all set for the rest of your career. It's not something you arrive at. Got it. Good to go. I'm done. I can stop working. I can stop putting in effort. I am all set. I've obtained this. Therefore, I'm good. And I think sometimes assurance can be treated like that. Where people want to arrive at this place where they have this feeling of assurance... And once they get that, then I'm good. I'm all set. I can stop putting in the effort. I can stop seeking and following and serving. As long as I get that feeling of assurance, I'm good. Okay? It occurs to me that assurance is the result, not the goal. Assurance comes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 assurance is a result mm-hmm. of um, again, it's not like you say it's not a goal. It's not something. It's not a, a place where you arrive and say, "Ah, I made it. I right. can relax. Go off and do other things." No. Yeah. It's, it's the result of uh, uh, I think taking actions and uh, actually obeying, doing what we're told, doing what we're yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's just it's not a singular object to be obtained. It's a it's an appropriate part of a faithful Christian life. Mm-hmm. He was pulling me. 
Mm-hmm. And when I noticed that, I was like, this is going against my natural brain because my natural brain would have been to want to escape the trouble, mm-hmm. not to seek help in a way from that, yeah. in, in a way that was helping. And the other thing <coughs> was that he was putting things, putting things in front of me, like, you know, like signs that, that were just so obvious. Yeah. And uh, that, that helped a lot in going against me straight away from that. Yeah, um, and and I say this because probably from I was fourteen till about seventeen, this was the single most difficult struggle in my life. Assurance, I just had no consistent assurance of my salvation, and it it, it was just hard. Um, and so I looked for that that something that would give me that assurance, so I could stop doubting. And that's, I, I, that's just what I wanted. And I, I was looking, as it were, for that singular object, that, that moment, that experience, that finally solidified it for me. And there's... I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Um, because you can be sure of your salvation and, and you have good, true reasons to be sure of your salvation, that does not mean you're not going to doubt your salvation in six months or in six years. There's, like, doubting our salvation, we're, we're sinful. And that, that is something that can and will happen in our lives. If we're just in the moments where we're struggling, where our emotions start to get the best of us, where we're really getting hit by doubts from, from Satan, like, like, it's just hard. Those things will happen even if Right now, you are very certain that you are the Lord's. Um, and so assurance is not this thing that is you know, said and done at one moment in time and you never will struggle with it ever again. Um, and that was really helpful for me to realize. Um, hmm? It seems to me that uh, assurance that you're putting for me is closely associated with peace with God, which I... Mm-hmm come to realize <coughs> the last few years I have more so now yeah. but it's, it's really basically down to trusting God in all circumstances over everything that I mean you're going to be assailed by all sorts of <coughs> things that could cause you to doubt to realize God is in control mm-hmm. no matter what happens you know hurricanes whatever he's, he's got it under control and, and there's peace in knowing that he has our best interest in mind all the time yeah. Mm-hmm. One way uh, of clarifying this is the difference between looking within and looking without. You know, someone described it like uh, a boat having mm-hmm. an anchor. And uh, what we often try to do for assurance is like someone foolishly wanting to stabilize the boat but keeping the anchor in the boat rather than throwing it overboard. Yeah. And so, what I think we're supposed to do in the scriptures to look away from ourselves mm-hmm. and look to Christ. Mm-hmm and see in his finished work on the cross that's where my assurance lies it's not in myself, it's in him I think that's how we make our calling and election sure if we do these things we'll never fall yeah, and and that's the part we want to get to next because there there certainly is um, you know, some internal component to this, we definitely need to be putting our anchor in Christ but the other thing the scripture teaches us and it's exactly what Peter says there when he says to make your calling and election sure he says, if you do these things Right, so there is also that 
external reality, those actions that come with true faith that we can look to as signs of our truly being converted. Um, and so it, the question becomes, is there, is there genuine spirit-driven change in your life, both internally and externally? Are you increasingly building your life around Christ? If you think about the mundane stuff you do, your work, uh, your vacation. Mark Dever at Ocean City said he chooses his vacation spots based on how good of a church is in the area so he can go to it. Um, and it was, it was kind of a, a you know, somewhat of a, a funny thing when he said it, but there was some great truth to that that I took away from that. I was like, is my life so built around Christ that even when I'm vacationing, it affects where I go and how I vacation? Right. Um, we read a great book with the youth group uh, two years ago called This Changes Everything. and It was written by a teenager and, and just an excellent exposition of the gospel and how it affects life. Um, and one thing she said is, when you go to college, when you go looking for a college, do you think about the churches in the area and do you possibly even choose your college based on the church in the area? Because... Your growth in Christ is more important than your education. Or do you just go to college and then you say when you get there, well, I've got to go find a church. Let's see what's in the area. That was mind-blowing to me. <laughs> I never thought about that. But this is what it looks like for our life to be built around Christ. It affects our marriages. It affects how we raise children. How we serve in the church. It affects how we receive correction. And this is the next thing the author of Hebrews gets to. Do we receive it humbly, being joyful for the opportunity to grow? Do we graciously correct others for the sake of their souls? Because this is what the author of Hebrews points to as the thing that needs to happen so that people do not fall away from the living God. So, verse 13, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts can deceive us. The thing the author of Hebrews points to is other people talking into your life, speaking into your life with gracious truth so that you do not get hardened, so that you do not fall away. So do you take exhortation well? Not only from the pulpit, but one-on-one. That's probably harder one-on-one. And if you, if you are just terrible at taking exhortation well, you need to heed this warning. Because your heart might be hardening. Your heart gets softer as people bring the Word of God to you. So if you do not take that well, take care, because your heart might be hardening. Your heart might be deceiving you. It is so easy to see sin in other people. And there's, there's some good to that. That gives you the opportunity as a loving brother or sister to go to them and graciously tell them. It also means that other people will more easily see sin in you than you do in yourself. Because your heart is deceitful. And so when people come to you, this is the gracious work of God. 
And the author of Hebrews says, this is what ought to be happening every day. Every day. As long as it is called today. So essentially, as long as we are here in this life, living for Christ, this ought to be a consistent part of our lives. A consistent part of our lives. This is not a, well, haven't, haven't, <laughs> haven't exhorted anybody today. Let's go through the church directory and find somebody. Um, this is not a hunter mentality where we're seeking to nitpick and, and poke at people and find every little sin and fault in them. But this is a reality that needs to be happening in a gracious, loving way because we're Christians who are still sinners and we don't want to see each other get hardened. Unfortunately, and this might not just be my experience, but I have seen this done as wrong as it can possibly be done. In in every church that I've been in. Yeah. Uh, Well, I can't say here yet. Oh, just give us some time. (laughs) I just... uh, It is a harsh reality. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's interesting that when you do one thing that you better make sure you're equipped to do Mm-hmm. In light of other texts, you know, in, in uh, Galatians, mm-hmm. if you see one yeah. taken in a sin, which I don't think is the exact same thing here. Right. But it is, uh, it is very, uh, that will reveal whether love is genuine yeah. or not. But not only that is done, but how it's done, as you yeah. said. But let's be honest, we can do everything in the Christian life wrong. That's right. It doesn't give us reason to stop doing it. Right. And, and this, and realistically, when it comes to this, we just don't do it because it's uncomfortable and we don't like to do it. That, that's really what it comes down to. Um, it's, it's not a matter of loving. It, it, yeah, we, we don't fail to do it um, for good reasons, right? And if we're bad at it, well, it's it's it's, it's an opportunity to grow and learn, so we can do it well. I do think there's a context here, though, that requires that sense of because. The one thing we're not we're not uh, we're not we're not food inspectors. Mm-hmm. I think there's a context in Hebrew where these people are in serious danger, not just from sort of the look. There is a belief system that they're going back to, mm-hmm. one that they were many of them might have been actually raised in, yeah. one that they're very familiar with. So I think that there's a real sense of um, of urgency to the specific situation here. Mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily translate into how do you do this every day in everyone's life anyway. Yeah. I think there is that sense of sort of propriety to that. I think that it can apply in a number of different ways. Um, I just think there's something about the intense context of Hebrews. Um, or, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everyone's life every day is constantly... I don't think we're constantly in the threat of sort of falling away. In a group, I, I, I try to think beyond just the individual here. This is a real corporate problem mm-hmm. where this people is under serious threat of falling away because collectively, as a body, like the Galatians, we'll hear about later upstairs, are in serious, yeah. serious danger of <coughs> yeah. falling away. So I'm, I'm, me, I'm not yet in the place where there have been a few instances where I've gone to people and exhorted in a sense in as gentle ways I can mm-hmm. but they have been very few despite what I might think in my life looks like a potential issue that they're having yeah. the self-examination that comes with doing that to see if this is this just something that's annoying me is this just something that's mm-hmm. tripping my trigger 
Yep. As you already mentioned, you, you yeah. did already mention it, doing it, you know, with the sort of love and grace that's called. Yeah. Um, it's a big deal. Right. So, when you come to a study of passages like this, obviously you're going to emphasize the things the passage teaches. Mm-hmm. We need to remember to incorporate and, and even temper a passage like this with the rest of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, so love covering a multitude of sins is something that ought to happen amongst the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time. You know, going and and speaking to a brother or sister in sin also ought to happen in the church, mm-hmm. and it needs to be done graciously and humbly mm-hmm. by a mature, you know, believer who is not just nitpicking or mm-hmm. being, um, you know, arrogant. Um, so those things need to temper this, but we never want to come to a passage like this and and, and in fact, I know you're not doing this, but we never want to come to a passage like this and dismiss it to some other situation that was beyond what we currently go through. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Bible is written about regular people doing life the same way we do it every day. Um, the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, you know, um, doing the mundane, everyday life things and giving us an example that we ought to learn from. Right? Um, I was struck by the story of Joseph when we did it at youth camp. There's probably five or six significant events you read about in Genesis in the life of Joseph. And that spans 18 years. And so if you realize that, you realize that the majority of Joseph's life was just everyday stuff. Getting up, serving Potiphar. Getting up, serving the jailer. I mean, just just nothing exciting. Um, and those big moments of faithfulness only happened because of his little moments of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's, it's, we're just, it's regular people <coughs> doing regular life. And so... Even if our, our church is not on the threshold of falling away, this still applies to us today. Um, and it's not necessarily always a confrontation. right? What about just encouragement? You know, comforting one another, uh, turning somebody's eyes to Christ when they start to just look away a little bit and see, like, like Peter did, see the waves come up and get scared and start to fall. You just you, you lift their eyes up to Christ. Maybe you just challenge somebody. I was convicted while studying this. You know, I, the, there's there's people that I just need to call a little bit more and and say, hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. Mm-hmm. What's going on? How are you? Are you are you are you falling away a little bit? Um, and so it's it's not just the the confrontational exhortation that we might you know think of when we read this passage, but it does include that. And it and it's necessary because of how deceptive sin is. And it is easier, far easier, for us to be misled in isolation from other believers. It's far easier for us to fall away in isolation from other believers. What are the the times you feel closest to the Lord? I'm willing to bet that some of them are right after a something like a Bible conference. Right, or a, a week of youth camp, or a retreat. When you are just surrounded by other people that love the Lord, and you are speaking of the Lord and turning your eyes on Him, that's essentially what the author here is talking about. It's like don't don't fall away from this, and you help each other do that. But it includes all of church life. This includes church discipline. Right? 
First Corinthians 6, probably the most severe case of church discipline mentioned in the Bible, the point of turning that man over to Satan was what? So that his soul might be saved. Right? So his soul might be saved. Even that is partly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. So that person would not die in their sins hardened by sin. You do that, that that harsh, as it were, but loving act of church discipline with this passage in mind. Right? And so this is what we do. What we ought to do in each other's lives. Verse 14 is, is kind of the reason. For we have come to share in Christ if Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is not a you are a Christian only as long as you don't lose your salvation, but rather, this is a your salvation is real only if it stays with you through your entire life. Only if you stay faithful through your entire life was your salvation real. Right? So, so if you say you believe, if you show some sprouting, and people look at you and say, wow, they really are passionate about Christ, and you fall away, you were not truly saved. Because real salvation perseveres to the end. Because real salvation is of God. Real salvation is God going and getting a person, changing their heart, drawing them to Himself, and then causing them to persevere to the end. Because it is God's work, therefore it will work all the way to the end. And so if it doesn't, it was never His work. Right? I love the way Pastor Spool put it, what he said, and many of you have heard me say this before, if you have it, you never lose it, but if you lose it, you mm. never had it. Yeah. A Christian can fall seriously and radically, but never fully or finally. Amen. Amen. And that is quite simply because our God is a persevering God. Right? Right? God causes His people to persevere. And this is the, the glorious you know, truth that, that, uh, that we hold in tension as we read this passage. Our salvation, while we put in the effort, while we exhort each other, our salvation does not depend on us. <clears throat> Ultimately, it is God who is most concerned about your salvation, far more than you are. And He will make sure that you persevere. And it might be because He warns you that if you don't, you will not make it. Right? And so He warns and He uses other people, but He's doing that because He has saved you and He's going to cause you to persevere. That expression, once saved, always saved. Uh, A.W. Pink said that it's too bald and unqualified yeah. of a statement yeah. because it can get licensed uh, to a believer that turns out to be licentiousness in taking advantage of your security when that's not the intention yeah. of the Scriptures to give you security in your falling away state, so to speak. Right, right. Um, 
as as with most things in scripture, if you if you go too far in one doctrine, you go into error. And this is a great example of that. So if you go too far into the you know, God has saved me and, and my salvation rests in him, if you go too far that direction you will be you will feel okay with a sinful lifestyle because it just doesn't matter because God has saved me. And that is simply wrong. And if that is where you are at, you will go to hell. Um, that is just that is not salvation. Um, if you go the other way, my salvation is something I have to keep and save and hold on to, and it all depends upon me. You have turned it into a works-based system that has forgotten that salvation is of God. But if we hold both of these truths in tension and heed both of them in our minds, we're on the right path. The Hebrews conference that we attended up in New Hampshire not so long ago, there was this emphasis, there was this robust discussion about the, the, um, the utility of warning for genuine believers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the sports analogy used is helpful to some extent. I mean, even a, a guy like, no, it's helpful. Okay. A guy like Martinez, that, you know, has got 40 home runs, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody could start to see him curve his hips a little bit, move that, and say to him, look, man, you keep doing that, you're going to yeah. be hitting doubles instead of home runs. Yeah. Well, if that was said with an earshot of some guy that's just over a rookie coming in, and you know he's still struggling with four or five home runs, that's something that's going to capture his attention as well. So JD is probably going to you know, watch some films of himself and see, yeah, that makes a difference. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. warning is used by God all the time, right? Yeah. To for people that aren't genuinely his. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I know the, the application. I know the analogy isn't nearly as intense. I mean, what's the risk for these people? Is it's absolutely devastating. It's just absolutely devastating what these people are facing. Yeah. Horrifying. And I, uh, I'm going way too slow, but we'll just uh, try to try to resolve this here and come to a final touch on a few final things as we close out. Um, but but I mean, really, these three verses are the heart of this passage. Um, there's there's a lot of questions that come after, and they're all kind of on the same topic. So mm-hmm. I, we'll try to come through that a little quicker. Um, but this is good for us to hear. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts mm-hmm. as in the rebellion. Mm-hmm. It's a real warning. We, we can start well and fail to finish. Um, and so we don't want to fail to finish. We, we, we want to finish well. We want to finish faithfully. And this is a, a warning and exhortation to do that. At the end of this book, the writer says, I, I have re- I, I'll just quote it. Go read it because I'm going to get it wrong. Um, and this is great because he's, he's doing what he says we ought to do. At the very end of, of Hebrews, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. We'll leave yeah. the briefly comment off, but he says, bear with my word of exhortation. He's doing what he's commanding us to do. We are to exhort one another, and that's what he's doing to us right now. Israel failed to enter the rest, and next week, uh, whoever's teaching will cover in more detail the idea of its rest. Um, But think about Adam and Eve, excluded from the fellowship of God, that, that restful place. Israel, excluded from the promised land, that land of rest. And in the same breath, believers that fall away, or we'll say professing believers that fall away, will be excluded from eternal rest in Christ. And that is the pattern of warning that is brought to our attention. The rest that he talks about at the end of this is still available. 
And that's the beauty of, of today being uh, still today. Uh, today hasn't ended. We are not yet in eternity. And so the promise of entering His rest still stands. And let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's the same idea He's been talking about here. Um, the goal is, is for us to wake up, as it were, and take a good look at our lives. To, to be honest with ourselves and even maybe ask other people who know us well, do, do you see godly change in me? Do you see spirit-driven uh, change in my life? Do you see the fruits of the Spirit? Do you see me loving the brethren? Our hearts can deceive us. And so it is good for others to help us and for us to, to reverently look at this in, a, in almost a fearful way. Where we are not just hearing a message like this and blowing it off because, well, you know, I've been saved for 20 years and I just know I'm saved and so I'm good. Um, we want to take an honest look at ourselves and say, am I following faithfully? Is my heart deceiving me in any areas? Because again, this is written to a church. A church full of people, some of them sitting there believing they were Christians, and they weren't. They just weren't. And they had missed something. And, and so if we just bypass a warning like this without taking it to heart, not, not to the point of, of, of doubt that causes us to despair, but, but truly taking it to heart and saying, okay, it is good to look at my life. It is good to evaluate where I'm at. It is good to see if I am finishing well. If I'm in the midst of finishing well. It is good to do that. And so the author of Hebrews says, the promise of entering His rest still stands. Right, right. Heaven is before us. So let's make sure we're not missing it. Let's make sure there's not something in our heart that is leading us away from our God. Let's make sure that we are standing fast. And then let's do that to each other as well. Let's help each other along that path. And that is all we have time for this morning. So let's close in prayer. Thanks, Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning and we ask for your help. Um, God, it is, it is your pure truth, your clarity that we need. Um, for we, uh, we, we don't always see things as we ought to. And Father, even when we look at another brother and sister, we don't necessarily see things as clearly as we ought to. Um, so Father, I pray that You would guide us, that You would persevere us, that You would continue to show us uh, that we are Yours, that You would continue to draw us to Yourself, even in ways that we don't understand, um, so that we, Father, will persevere to the end. Father, we believe that You have saved us. We have trusted in Christ. Um, and we want to see that confirmed day after day as we put forth effort to follow You and as we see You working in us, making sure that we persevere to the end. Um, so, Father, help us to understand these truths. Help us to take this warning in a right way. Um, Father, if anybody here is 
is yours. I pray that they would not doubt unto despair, but that rather they would be exhorted and confirmed in their faith. Father, if there's anybody here who thinks they know you and does not, I pray that that would come out, that they would see that, that they would long to know um, if that, that they would long to see that um, so that they might come to true faith. Father, we thank you for this, this time this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Thanks, Jeff.